This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Again, reading from verse 35. <clears throat> Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, we translate it, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. And that was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah, you should be called Cephas which is translated a stone. He found his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. We come this morning to uh, this short study we're doing on the, the lives of Christ's apostles. And uh, we're coming now to the second name one, which is Andrew. Uh, but before we do that, can I just uh, add a postscript to what I said in the last message regarding Peter, I did say that we would probably wait until we had done with these and then mention uh, how they died. But I want to uh, come back from that. Actually, on hindsight, maybe it wasn't my best idea. I think we probably should uh, keep it as we go along. So let me just then back up just a moment. Uh, scripture does not reveal uh, how Peter died. Jesus in John 21, do you remember the, the time when he met the disciples after that fruitless night's fishing and how he met them on the seashore? This was after Christ's resurrection. And he took Peter aside and restored him three times. He said, do you love me? And we talked about that last week. And then how do we have followed on from that? Uh, Jesus then said to Peter, he says, look, Peter, when you were young, he says, you would go wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you'll hold out your hands and one will bind you and take you where you don't want to go, signifying which death he would die. And so scripture doesn't tell us his actual death, but tradition does. Uh, Eusebius and Clement, fourth century historians, uh, tell us that Peter eventually went to Rome. Now, that is debated whether he ever, ever, ever went to Rome. But most historians do say he went to Rome. And it was there he was crucified. And tradition says that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner as his master. And other tradition also says that he was forced to watch his wife being crucified first of all because his wife went with him according to the Apostle Paul. He took a wife with him. So be that as it may, that's what tradition says, and I don't think we have any great reason to doubt that. 
However, now we're coming to Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Whether he was younger, whether he was older, brother, we cannot tell. Their hometown was Bethsaida, uh, which is the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And they had moved, by this time in our story, they had moved to Capernaum, which is just around the coast a little bit, which was a fishing port, a much bigger uh, town. And uh, we also know from Scripture that they had a house there and that they lived in that same house, even though Peter had a wife, but they lived in that, in that particular home there in Capernaum. And uh, we know that, of course, that they were uh, in the fishing business. And uh, perhaps fishing was more lucrative in Capernaum than it had been, of course, in Bethsaida. James and John were their close friends, probably since childhood, actually. But we do know that they're partners in the fishing business. And although Andrew is always listed in the group of the first four, uh, he was never quite in the inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John. <coughs> he was always just outside, the, in the top four, but never quite in the top three. Uh, J.D. Jones, an old writer of yesteryear, uh, he said he was like Benaniah, one of David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Uh, Benaniah was a, a fearless man, a very brave man. He was the one who fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He was the one who killed two lion-like men at Moab. He was the one who took on an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. And like Goliath had a spear like a weaver's beam and he took it off him and killed him with it. So he was, a, he was a brave man. He was a fighting soldier of a man. But the Bible says he was more honorable. He was more honorable than the 30 of David's mighty men, but he never attained to David's first three. And so that's a bit like Andrew here. Now, even though he was in the first four, he never attained to that tight inner circle of Jesus, of James and Peter, James, and John, but he handled that very well. Not everybody could have handled it as well as Andrew did. Remember, these men argued among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus had to chastise them for that on occasion. You know, so there's big egos at play here. And you must remember, all these disciples and apostles, they're all very young men. I mean, you're talking here 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, all young men. And you also got to remember, at this time, Jesus, <laughs> he's the biggest talking subject in the whole land. I mean, he's famous throughout the whole land. And they were with him. And, and so you can easily understand how egos would come into play here. And they were human. They were no different than us. Uh, and so Andrew was the one who seemed to rise above that. He didn't seem to get involved in that carnal ambition that others uh, seemed to have. It looked to be he was, he was quite content just to be among the 12. He was quite content just to be what or do and be and have what Jesus wanted them to do and be and have. He just seemed to be quite happy to do that. He didn't seem to be jealous or envious of the other three, even though one of them was his own brother. Uh, yet he just seemed to manage to be able to handle it. Now, that's a rare uh, thing, and it's a good thing. It's a wonderful, uh, commendable attitude to have. Andrew really wasn't cut out for the limelight, but he didn't seem to resent it. Maybe the Lord, knowing everything, maybe knew that he maybe would not be able to handle being in the first three. 
You know, maybe the Lord just put him where he was, knowing that was his level, that's what he could handle, that's what he'd be good at. But for whatever reason, he was happy to do that. Many a church is split and riven by the ambitions of carnal men. They want to be at the helm. They're actually a deck hand on the ship, but they want to be the captain. And many a church goes through splits because of the ambition of carnal men who's not happy and content to be where God has placed them. They're always wanting to be somebody else or to have somebody else's talent or somebody else's position or be this or that or the other, not happy being what they are and how God can use them as they are. Thankfully, Andrew didn't seem uh, to be like that. Jesus, at least it's not recorded that they ever had to rebuke Andrew as an individual. Certainly had to rebuke Peter on occasions. Now, being Simon's brother, growing up as Simon's brother, it mustn't have been easy. Because Simon, you know, was brash. He was super confident. He was loud. He was impetuous. He was a, a natural-born leader. Andrew was more of a follower than a leader. Uh, and so it, it, it could not have been easy growing up in the shadow of, of Big Peter, the big fisherman. Uh, but that's, that's the way it was. In the 13 times that Andrew's name is mentioned in the Scripture, and most of them are just in passing, invariably he's known as Simon Peter's brother. That's how he was known. Everybody knew Simon Peter. And when it came down, oh, oh uh, Simon Peter's his brother. You know, Claire and I has a little bit of fun now because she's got quite well known on her mission. And it used to be, you know, people talked about Claire and says, oh, uh, David Gowdy, that's, uh, he's her dad. Now I'm known as her dar, or I'm known as, she's known as, what am I trying to say? <laughs> I got all mixed up there. Anyway, you know what I mean? Anyway, she's, she's the one that's known more than me now. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's fun. We, sometimes we have a laugh at that, you know, whenever I meet people. All right, okay. Uh, so I, I get the impression, though, that, that Andrew was just, he was just happy enough to be in the orchestra of life. He, he didn't want to be first violinist. Just being in the orchestra was enough for him. Old C.H. Spurgeon, I think it was, who says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And it's not easy to play the second fiddle, particularly if you think you should be the first fiddle. And so that's the way that it was. And, you know, whenever you see the Queen of England, uh, you know, when she's on these official uh, functions and doing it, Prince Philip is always just coming up the rear, isn't he? He's always just a couple of steps behind. And he has been her rock for many, and she admits he has been her rock for many, many years. Yes, he gets into trouble. Yes, he says the wrong thing. Yes, he causes a wee bit of controversy from time to time. We know that. But still, he gives her her place. You know, do you ever notice whenever they're singing God Save the Queen, he's singing it too. You know, that's protocol. He has to do that. Remember years ago, some of you young ones wouldn't remember, the Prime Minister of Great Britain was Maggie Thatcher. Some of you old remember Maggie. She was an iron lady, they called her. I mean, she was hard as nails. I mean, the men could hardly stand her. And, you know, and her cabinet members used to say they got handbagged with Maggie. Maggie would handbag them. I mean, she had railroaded them. They couldn't stand up to her. But Dennis, her, her husband, Dennis was always just in the background. 
In fact, many people didn't even know what Dennis looked like. You know, whenever she would go somewhere, there'd be a crowd around her. Dennis would be in the crowd behind, just a few steps behind, keeping an eye on things. And again, she said he was, uh, he was her rock. She needed him to be there. And, uh, and so this seemed to be the way with Andrew and Peter. Now, we must never forget, of course, when we speak of Andrew, uh, that he was Christ's first convert and Christ's first disciple. It was at Jesus' baptism where Andrew uh, first met Christ, and it was the day after that, uh, whenever they went with Jesus. And it was Andrew, and, and it says, and another disciple, which was probably John. John usually did not refer to himself by name. And so most commentators believe it was actually John. Remember, Andrew and probably John were already disciples of John the Baptist. There was something about John the Baptist. He was, he, there was something about him that attracted Andrew. Andrew was a deeply spiritual man. Yes, he was a fisherman. Yes, he had a business. But often he would take time off just to go to the wilderness to be around John the Baptist. He loved his preaching. He loved that message of repentance. And he loved to hear about the Messiah that was coming. And so whenever, whenever John said, Behold the Lamb of God, when Jesus appeared, then obviously that's what Andrew and probably John was waiting on to meet the Messiah. And they went with him. And it was there, and then they decided to follow him. We know it was some time later, perhaps months later, when they actually gave up the fishing business to follow him. But at least then they knew who he was, and they began to, uh, to follow him. And so he was a deeply spiritual man. Business should never exclude a person from seeking to further their own spiritual lives. Many a businessman, many a businesswoman are very spiritual people. But God has called them not to be behind a pulpit, but God has called them into business and to influence the business world, influence the marketplace where they are. And they, many of them are, are spiritual people. They love the Word of God. They love the house of God. Uh, they love to worship. They love to pray. But... They're gifted and called to be business people. And so thank God for those who are like that. We know there's some who aren't, but thank God for the many who are, and they love the Lord. Well, John and Peter and James and so forth, they were business people in the fishing business, but they loved the things of God, and they would seek after the things of God. We know that Lydia was a seller of purple. Uh, Lydia was a businesswoman. And she was a godly businesswoman. But she was a very talented lady. And she had a great product. And it would, it would mean that she'd have to travel far and wide to, to sell her wares. But wherever she would go with her servants, so she was a, a well-to-do, prosperous businesswoman, wherever she was, she would be praying. And that's where, where Paul and Silas found her at a riverside praying. She was leading a prayer meeting. And it was there that they explained to her the way of the gospel, the way of Christ. And there and then she got saved, she got born again of God's spirit. But she was a godly woman. And she was a woman who loved the Lord. We know that Philemon was a, a godly businessman. Uh, and he, he had a big house and he had servants. 
and he would hold meetings there because church in those days wasn't in buildings like we have, but was in people's homes. And we can imagine he had quite a big home because he was a successful businessman. And so people would come there and they would hear the gospel and they would get saved. And one of his servants ran away, Onesimus, ended up in Rome, ended up in prison with Paul. Paul led him to Christ. And when the time came for Onesimus to, to get released, Paul sent him back to his good friend Philemon, this businessman, with a beautiful little letter explaining that he had led him to Christ. Now receive him back, not as a slave, but as a son. And that's the little book of life Philemon you'll find in the New Testament. It's a lovely little book. And so he was a Christian businessman. Many people have ever been to Parr's Court in County Wicklow? A few of you. Did you know that Lady Parr's Court was a believer? A born-again, on-fire, Holy Spirit-filled believer who held conferences there and invited preachers, particularly preachers preached about the prophetic things that's happening in the world. She'd invite them for conferences right there in that beautiful stately home. And so she was a wealthy woman with a great stately home, but she was a godly woman who loved the things of God and invited that into her very home. So thank God for those people. In John 1.41, notice here, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. He first found his own brother. <laughs> Is it not a fact that often we find it difficult to share with our loved ones? We'd rather somebody else do it. Is it not a fact that we'd almost share the gospel with anybody else except our own household? Well, Andrew wasn't like that. The very first person he thought of was his brother, Simon couldn't wait to tell him. Listen, if tomorrow you come into a fortune, you would be on the phone immediately to your family and you would tell them. And you wouldn't be tongue-tied. And you wouldn't be nervous about it. You'd be excited. You'd be thrilled. You would want them to know. And you would probably want to give them something of your fortune. You want to share it with them. And if it was 3 o'clock in the morning, you'd ring them up. You'd get them out of bed to tell them. And we have got the greatest message that we could tell any human being on earth. We've got the greatest riches to give to anybody. Eternal life. But do we do that? What have you got to lose? You say, but I wouldn't know what to say. Just tell them. <coughs> Just tell them about the love of God. Tell them about Christ down on the cross. Tell them they need to be saved. Just tell them. What's the worst can happen? You say, they might say no. Yes, but they might say yes. I've had to do it with my family, with my dad, with my uncles, with my cousins. I've had to do it. And yes, you're a little bit nervous. And yes, you wonder, well, how am I going to word this? And what if they ask me this? But you just go ahead and do it. And you may be pleasantly surprised. In fact, you may do it, and they may turn around to you and say, do you know what? Isn't that funny? That's, I was just thinking about that this week. I was just wondering about that this week. It could just be their time for you to tell them. 
Andrew just could not wait to go to his brother and tell him. And so, the first convert became the first evangelist. The first convert became the first evangelist. Often it's those who are just saved that are quickest to win others to Christ. Why? Two reasons. First of all, they are enthused. They're full of it. They're excited about it. And they want to tell somebody. Secondly, because they've still got a circle of people who are not Christians. They're still in that circle. So there's somebody to share it with. After you become a Christian, after you become a believer, oftentimes in six months or a year time, you don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. So who are you going to win to Christ? Who are you going to share it with? And so sometimes it's the new believers who's the quickest to tell and to share and to get the word out. And thank God uh, for that. Notice he went to his brother first. What a fish to catch. Immediately he's a fisher of men. What a great fish to catch. The apostle Peter that would go on in his first sermon and win 3,000 people to Christ. <laughs> what a fish to catch. You never know who you might share the gospel with or who you might lead to Christ, what they may do. Maybe much more than you'll ever do. Charles was a 15-year-old boy. And it was a cold January morning in 1850. And he was making his way to the place of worship. But a blizzard came on, and he couldn't make it to where he wanted to go. But in a little church, a little primitive Methodist church in Artillery Street, the door was open, and he dived in. There's only about a dozen people there because of the weather. And he sat way at the back underneath the balcony. And he noticed this group near the front all talking together about the minister hadn't come, he couldn't make it. Who was going to preach that morning? Nobody wanted to do it. And there was a couple of elders and a couple of the congregation. And he said, said later on, he says, he watched until one was kind of press ganged into it. And this kind of thin, reedy man got up onto the platform, climbed up the stairs, and he says it was obvious he had no sermon. <laughs> and he looked around, and his text was, Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he says he couldn't even pronounce the words right. And he says, I'm listening. And he looks at me. And he says, young man, you look miserable. <laughs> look, look, look to Jesus and be saved. And Charles says, right there and then, I looked and I got saved. And little did that unknown elder who couldn't preach for toffee apples, <laughs> little did he know that he had just led one of the greatest preachers that Britain has ever known <coughs> to Christ. Little did he know that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in just a few years, as a young man, would be preaching to the biggest crowds in London would end up with a megachurch 
through his ministry would see hundreds of thousands saved. His books are still around the world today. Just one person. Just one person. pastor of a Scottish church many, many years ago decided to hold an evangelistic mission for a week. And he preached his heart out night after night after night. Nobody responded. He comes to the last night of the mission, preaches his heart out again, and right at the end he makes his final appeal, impassioned appeal. And one wee boy was there give his heart to Christ and little did that pastor know he was so deflated after a whole week of effort just one wee boy gets saved he thought is that all I've got for my efforts this week but little did he know that that wee boy would open up the continent of Africa and today because David Livingstone went to Africa millions in Africa are saved today because he was the one who opened it up. Just one person. Just one person. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. And every day he would pass by a, a shoe shop. He saw a young man in there and he took a burden for him to share Christ. But he hadn't the courage. He thought about it and thought about it. And one day he decided, I'll do it today. And as he was walking along, he thought, well, it's business hours and, and he's working in the shop, this young man, and he mightn't like it if I just come in in front of all his friends. They might make fun of him. Uh, and he was starting to make excuses how he couldn't do it. Uh, and what am I going to say? And he was very nervous. In fact, he walked right past the shop. Then he realized, and he came back and says, I'm going to have to do it right now. And he goes into the shop. He asks for him. This is all he's in the, he's in the store at the back. And he's in there. And he said years later, he says, I have no idea what I said. Can't remember a word of it. I was so nervous. But he says, I shared about the love of God and about Christ dying for him. He says, that's all. I, I don't even know the words he used. And left. That young man got saved. He was biblically illiterate, the young man didn't know a book of the Bible. In fact, when he started to go to church and he wanted to join, they wouldn't let him join because he didn't know anything. <laughs> that little boy, D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody, became America's greatest preacher. And his Bible school is still there to this day and his church is still there to this day. He held great crusades in America and in Britain and hundreds of thousands of people found Christ through that wee boy working in the shoe shop. So you never know if you just share Christ with somebody, not only may they get saved, but they may be the means of many others coming to Christ. It says he brought him, Peter, he brought him to Jesus. It's interesting because the word brought, fair says, it, mean, it comes from a Greek word meaning to drive, to lead by laying hold of, to lead by accompanying. A.T. Robertson says that the use of the word here indicates that Andrew had to overcome some resistance on Peter's part. Have you ever felt some resistance when you're sharing with family members 
or you're sharing with somebody in the workplace, or you're sharing with them, have you ever felt a resistance? Well, it seemed to be that Peter, there was a resistance at the start. Remember now, Peter wasn't out seeing John the Baptist. He had to go and find him, because he wasn't with him. Peter was doing his business. He was a fisherman. So it seemed to be initially that it was Andrew had the heart and the desire to run after the things of God. But he went, and he found Peter, and he brought him. He encouraged him. He coaxed him. He brought him along to see the master. Finding and bringing is part and parcel of personal evangelism. Most people who get saved at a church service or a crusade or a mission, most of them, it's because somebody went and found them and brought them. Most has not just woke up somewhere and said, do you know what, I think I'll go to church today. It's because somebody has shared with them, somebody's encouraged them, somebody has prayed for them, somebody has invited them, somebody has brought them along. That's how it usually works. Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for years, in fact, when Franklin Graham was here about a decade ago, uh, he did the same. The thing called the, the Andrew Programme, and the idea is to, is to think about maybe 10 people, write their names down, that you could invite to the, to the crusade and pray for them every day for, say, a month. And then go and invite those 10. Now, chances are they won't all come, but maybe one or two might come out of the 10 and bring them along to the crusade. They've done this for years, and that has been the key reason why their crusades has been so successful. The Andrew principle, go and find somebody and bring them. Leslie Flynn tells the story uh, of a little woman when the crusade came to his, his town where he lived in, I think it was North Carolina, that the, one of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association men, as they always do, they come up to two years beforehand to pave the way for the mission. And so he was telling about the Andrew program and got them all involved in it. In fact, when we got involved with the evangelistic crusade of Franklin Graham, we did the same. Got them involved in it. And so this little woman went to this man, and she says, I'm 82 years old. I haven't led anybody to Christ for years. I'm hardly ever out. I don't know anybody. <coughs> and so the crusade came and started. And the first night, this representative of the association, he was standing down near the front watching the people coming forward to get counseled. And he felt a tug in his coat. He turned around, it was a little woman. And she says, uh, remember me? She said, I have been going to the supermarket twice every day for a week. She says, I usually only go once a week, but I'm going twice every day for a week. And I always made sure I got to the same checkout girl and I talked to her and befriended her. Look, there she is up at the front, giving her heart to Christ. Two nights later, he's standing in the same place, felt a tug on his coattail, and he turns around, and it's the same woman. She says, how do I look? And then she says, it's years since I've gone to the beauty parlor. But she says, I've gone three times this week, and I made sure I got the same girl. And she says, look, there she is. She's up at the front getting counseled. <laughs> Finding and bringing can make all the difference in the world. Andrew was like that. 
Remember the feeding of the 5,000? All four gospel writers record it. But it's John who tells about Andrew. And how at the end of that period, and the people were hungry, and, and uh, Jesus said to his men, we're, we're going to have to feed these people. He said, oh, no, 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 send them away. Send them into the villages. <laughs> I want it rid of them completely. Send them into the villages. No, no, Jesus says. Uh, we'll have to feed them. Philip says, look, 200 denarii would not feed this crowd. 200 denarii. A man's wage was one denarii a day. So that's almost eight months wages. Philip says, that wouldn't even feed them. There's that many. There's 5,000 women besides, 5,000 men besides women and children. There might have been 15,000 there. Jesus says, you feed them. <laughs> you feed them. So they're in a pickle now, aren't they? What are they going to do? Andrew goes and he gets a lad with a lunch. A lad with a lunch. Just a wee boy with his lunch. His mummy had packed for him. Five barley loaves, two small fishes. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, you have to wonder... What was going on in Andrew's mind? Was he thinking, Jesus has asked something here that's just impossible, so he must have a plan, because we don't have a plan. He must have one. And the best I can do is to bring this little lad's lunch to him. I don't know what he could do with it, but I'm going to bring it. But then when he brought it, and he looked what was in his hands, and he looked at the vast crowd, he says, but what are they among so many? must have felt a wee bit foolish at that point. What are they among so many? But you know what happened. You know the end of the story. How a great miracle took place. And Jesus prayed and broke the bread. And all of those 5,000 were fed. And 12 baskets were left over. It's amazing what can happen in just that little thing. He brought a lad to Christ. Sunday school teachers you're dealing with the little boys and the little girls and some of them will go on to do great works for Christ and you're doing it behind the scenes downstairs and you miss the service and nobody here sees what you do but God sees and God is pleased because you're sowing into those wee hearts. And some of those children will grow up. Some will grow up to go into the workplace and into business and into nursing and into missions and into church life. And they'll serve the Lord as a witness and testimony. That's wonderful just by bringing a child. Thank God for CEF and for SU and for the Boys Brigade and the Girls Brigade and anything that's having an influence over young lives for God's wonderful. He looked what was in his hands and he looked at the crowd and he thought, but what are they among so many? Moses, God told him to go and challenge Pharaoh. And you know Moses started to make excuses. Well, I'm not much of a speaker. I've got a stammer. Uh, and I can't communicate very well. 
and he's making all these excuses, and God says, what's in your hand? Well, he had just come from the backside of the desert. He was looking after sheep, so it was his shepherd's staff. He says, a staff, throw it down. And he threw it down, and it turned into a snake. And he ran. I think I'd run too. God says, take it up with the tail. Anybody knows you do not pick a snake up by the tail. You get up in the scruff of the neck and the biting end first. But he had to face his fears. And he reached down, grabbed his tail, and it turned back into a rod again. And Moses and that rod from then on would do mighty miracles. Would bring plagues over Egypt. Would see the Red Sea opened. That was all that was in his hand. That's all he had. Isn't it amazing? Elisha was the principal of the school of the prophets. He was the dean. And one of the wives of one of the prophets came to him and says, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And the creditors are coming to take away my two sons to be slaves. And Elisha looks at her and says, What have you got in the house? What's in your hand, in other words? What have you got in the house? She says, Nothing. I'm skint, I'm broke, I have nothing. Oh, except a little pot of oil. That's all I've got. It's all I have at hand, a little pot of oil. And you know the story. He says, well, go out and borrow all the vessels you can find and come back and begin to pour out into those vessels. And as she poured out, every vessel was filled until there was no more vessels to fill. Then the oil stopped. He says, now go out, sell what you can, pay your debt and live of the rest. It's all she had in her hand. But how many knows that little is much in the hands of a big God. Little is much in the hands of a big God. Jesus is standing in the court of the woman at the temple where the treasury was, where those big brazen bowls for offerings were, and he's standing watching, and people are coming, and the rich were throwing in much. And he watched this little woman come the woman comes with her two mates, a pittance, and she throws it in. And Jesus calls his disciples over. He says, come on, let me show you this. He says, look, those who were rich threw in of their abundance. But this little woman gave all that she had. All she had was two mates. It's hardly anything, but it was everything to her. It was all that she had. That was all she had in her hand. But little is much in the hands of a big God. It's much in the hands of a big God. So what's in your hand today? Throw your rod down. Throw those two mites in. Give that little pot of oil up. Whatever is in your hand, give it to him to use for his glory and he'll do it and he'll be blessed 
And so Andrew brings Peter, Andrew brings the lad with the lunch, and for the third time recorded, Andrew brings somebody else to Jesus. In John chapter 12, time of the feast, people were coming from all over the empire, those who were Jews, those who were proselytes, those who had accepted the Jewish faith, Judaism. And there was a, a bunch of Greeks there. Now, as I said a moment or two ago, Jesus at this point, everybody had heard about Jesus, including these people who had come from other lands. And so they wanted to see Jesus. And Philip, being a Greek name, because they were starting to get well-known too, obviously. So they went to Philip. He had a Greek name. So I thought, well, that's, that sounds good. We'll go to him. And he says, sir, we would want to see Jesus. And Philip didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. Because maybe in the back of his mind, he's maybe thinking, but Jesus said he hasn't come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he did say that. So what am I going to do? These are not Jews. They're proselytes, but they're Greeks. They're not born and bred Jews like us. So what did he do? He went to Andrew. And Andrew knew immediately what to do. Immediately Andrew decided, let's go and let them see Jesus. We'll work out all that theology later. But they want to see Jesus, so let's take them to see Jesus. So in John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, but the, then they came to Philip, who was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So Andrew says, Right, I know what to do. We'll just go to Jesus. We'll let him sort it out. But Jesus answered them, Now this is important, and it's good that he took them to see Jesus because Jesus is about to reveal something of his mission here that they needed to hear. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come and the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That must have been something standing there to hear this voice coming from heaven. Therefore the people who stood by heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he should die. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, <coughs> black, white, brown, red, orange, green, whatever color 
you fly under. He says, I will draw them and win them. That was because Andrew brought them to Christ. And that was a wonderful revelation of what Jesus was going to do. So far as we know, Andrew never preached to a multitude like Peter. He didn't write a gospel or an epistle. As far as we know, he never raised up a church, never pastored. But for the rest of his life, he was an ardent, faithful evangelist bringing people to Christ one by one by one. Not everybody is going to grace a platform at a crusade or a mission even or even a church service. But not every preacher can walk into your workplace. Not every preacher can reach your neighbor or your loved ones. And Andrew was like that. Scripture never mentions him again after Pentecost. He was a background man, content, happy to be that. Not looking somebody else's position, not looking the limelight, not wanting the spotlight to fall on him, just happy just to share his faith wherever he was with others. And yet for all of that, he became the patron saint of at least three countries. Preached and evangelized, according to Eusebius, preached and evangelized in Scythia, which is in southern Russia today, which is why he's become the patron saint of Russia. Went to Greece and led the wife of a Roman governor there to Christ. And the Roman governor was livid, according to traditional lessons. He was livid and asked his wife to denounce Christ, and she wouldn't. And so he crucified Andrew. Not on the normal Roman gibbet that we see predicted, uh, you know, shown, but a saltire, an axe-shaped cross, a saltire. And he became a patron saint of Greece. And probably we all know he's the patron saint of Scotland. Scottish flag, the saltire, after Andrew. Tradition says that some of his relics came to Scotland. And the Declaration of Arbroath in 1320 AD says that these relics came to Scotland. And historians argue about the date of this and so forth, but it's attributed that the gospel was brought to Scotland through Andrew, and he's become the patron saint of Scotland. Not bad for a background man, not bad for somebody who just wanted to win people to Christ. To this very day, after 2,000 years, he's the patron saint of three nations. In fact, others say Ukraine and Romania too, because apparently he preached near Kiev in these areas as well. Andrew is an encouragement to us all, isn't he? Encouragement to all those who will never ever stand on a platform, who maybe will never be gifted with any prominent position or have any great startling abilities or wonderful singers or tremendous preachers, whatever the case may be, just ordinary five-eighths people just like you and just like me. So he's an encouragement for all of us. There's not many Peters, there's not many James, there's not many Johns, but there's lots of Andrews. 
And the church could not exist without the Andrews of this world. The Andrews quietly working away behind the scenes, doing what God has called them to do. That's what gets the job done. Rich in men and women and boys and girls for Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you that no matter if we ever stand on a platform, you have a work for each and every single one of us to do. Even if it's only to reach our next door neighbor. Lord, help us to be Andrews and to gossip the gospel where and when we can that we may find and bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. So we give you thanks for the encouragement that we get from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.